Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new Books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Tim Lundy. The presentations you are about to hear come from an event held on November 12, 2020, celebrating the 2019 book At the Center, American Thought and Culture in the Mid-20th Century. The book's authors, Professors Casey Blake, Daniel H. Boris, and Howard Brick, are all specialists in the cultural and intellectual history of the United States. Professor Blake is a professor of history and the Mendelssohn Family Professor of American Studies at Columbia University. Professor Boris is a professor emeritus of history at the University of Virginia. And Professor Brick is the Lewis Evans Chair in U.S. History at the University of Michigan. At the Center tells the story of thought and culture in the United States at the center of the 20th century, from the year 1948 through 1963. These years marked the height of the United States' centrality to global politics, after the end of World War II and the start of the Cold War. Professors Blake, Boris, and Brick also use the term centering to describe a trend that unites the wide range of thinkers they consider in their book. From artists and intellectuals, to cultural critics across the political spectrum, to writers and academics in the sciences, social sciences, and humanities. Many of these thinkers undertook intellectual, cultural, and political projects that tried to find stable, universal foundations for human knowledge and action, a center for making sense of the world and for protecting societies from the dangers of war and totalitarianism. In their book, Professors Blake, Boris, and Brick try to recover the meaning of these intellectual projects for the people who undertook them, and to understand why centering was such an appealing way of thinking. They also explore those figures who rejected the search for a center, a position that would become dominant in the late 1960s and beyond. First, we will hear all three authors of At the Center describe the book's argument and their goals in writing it. Professor Blake will speak first, followed by Professor Boris, and then Professor Brick. Afterward, we will hear the authors in conversation with James T. Kloppenberg, the Charles Warren Professor of American History at Harvard University. The title of our book speaks to the concerns that animated this collaboration. On the most prosaic level, it refers to our chronological period, the center of the 20th century, and more specifically to the years between 1948 and 1963, the time of the high Cold War and the apex of US global hegemony. That period witnessed a growing confidence among political and cultural leaders that in the aftermath of the Second World War, the US stood at the center of things. As Columbia historian Jacques Barzan observed in 1952, the US after the war was now quite simply the world power, which means the center of world awareness. Such confidence coexisted with an undertow of dread, with the cultural and intellectual life of the country haunted by the global slaughter of the early 1940s and the possibility of worse destruction to come. Such fears generated many of the centering projects that occupy our attention, efforts to locate moral and epistemological principles that might guide human conduct, to chart pathways to psychological maturity, 
and to promote a humanism that would allow for the inclusion of marginalized groups and solidarity across national borders. In contrast to the historicism and pragmatism of the early 20th century, our period witnessed a new foundationalism, which in turn marked it off from the second revolt against formalism that came to the fore amid the conflicts of the late 60s and 70s. It should be noted that we have not written a history of what Arthur Schlesinger Jr. called the vital center of American politics, though his brief for anti-communist liberalism gets its due in our book, nor have we recycled a story about Cold War consensus, even as we note the yearning for consensus in some quarters. Our long 50s is not what the poet Robert Lowell calls the tranquilized 50s. What makes the period distinctive in our view is the search for centers and the recoil against such centering. That dynamic, not any imagined consensus, is what we find at the center of the 20th century. The era's centering impulse had a strong anti-historicist character, unusual in being self-conscious about its own historicity. The horrors of contemporary history, many argued, demanded a turn away from history understood as a story of progress. Albert Camus signaled this shift in his 1946 essay, Neither Victims Nor Executioners, which was immediately translated into English by the American radical critic Dwight MacDonald. We cannot escape history since we are in it up to our necks, Camus wrote, but one may propose to fight within history to preserve from history that part of man which is not its proper province. That fight was taken up by US thinkers ranging from McDonald on the anarchist left to Richard Weaver on the traditionalist right, as well as leading figures in the philosophy of science, anthropology, social psychology, Zen Buddhism, and Christian theology. This was to be sure not Fukuyama's end of history, but an effort to safeguard meaning and purpose in an age of authoritarianism and total war. Yet anti-historicism and the quest to center human experience generated fierce opposition, again creating unwitting alliances between figures who are rarely considered together. Cultural critic Kenneth Burke and advocates of modernization theory maintained a historicist worldview as of course did practicing historians. The search for a stable self secure against the forces of social control coexisted with anxiety about loneliness as a paralyzing feature of modern existence, manifest in David Reisman's classic, The Lonely Crowd and Frank Sinatra's ballads alike. The new critics in literature and Clement Greenberg in the visual arts sought to fix the meaning of modernist works in their formal properties. They faced a sharp rebuke from the relational aesthetics pioneered at Black Mountain College, the new American poetry movements in San Francisco and New York, and the happenings of the late 50s and early 60s. These new modernists abandoned the autonomous art object for art as performance, fractured audience perspective and sought to erase the boundary between art and real life. The era's assimilationist projects likewise faced challenges from many quarters, notably from black artists and intellectuals like Lorraine Hansberry, Miles Davis, Nina Simone, 
James Baldwin and Amiri Baraka, but also from informal assertions of difference, such as the turnout of gay men for Judy Garland's 1961 comeback concert at Carnegie Hall, and the struggle of political elites to maintain the country's place at the center of world awareness suffered one shock after another from anti-colonialist movements across the globe. History could not be banished in, a, in other words. And by 1963, history returned with a vengeance in Birmingham, in Dallas, and in Vietnam. Americans have ever since lived on edge. New foundationalism was especially in evidence in thinking about the interplay of self and society. The self assumed new importance in light of an understanding that totalitarianism had triumphed because it exploited the unfulfilled psychic needs of individuals and meshed in a mass society. Interestingly, the post-war search for a continuous stable self was conducted primarily as a psychological one, rather than as in the past, one more suited for philosophy or religion. A significant aspect of the search for self was rooting selfhood in biology. William Sheldon's somatotypes that link personality with body type, Alfred Kinsey's naturalistic study of human sexual behavior, Margaret Mead's meditation on sexual and gender differences, and Orthodox Freudianism all anchored the self in a biological foundation, a position that did not, of course, go unchallenged. Complementing the post-war nature-nurture debate was a related one, whether the self in America was so pressed in by others that it lost its autonomy, or whether it lacked real and meaningful attachments. That played out in a culture-wide interest in loneliness which subtly changed in meaning from the feelings that arose when physically alone to feelings that arose from insufficient or unrewarding connections. Here we examine how cultural artifacts from David Reisman's Lonely Crowd, such Westerns as High Noon, Shame, and The Lonely Are the Brave, George Tooker's paintings, Robert Frank's photographs in The Americans, and Frank Sinatra's singing all put loneliness at the center of their work. Both biological change and social insecurities converged in adolescence, negotiating those changes, as Eric Erickson noted in his famed Childhood and Society, made adolescence a pivotal stage. How American teenagers would develop prompted reports from the field by, among others, sociologist James Coleman, professor of education Edgar Z. Friedenberg, and cultural anthropologist Jules Henry. It prompted a slew of movies for and about teenagers, the most famous being Rebel Without a Cause, which saw the teenage problem as a lack of strong male road models. And of course, a set of classic novels, J.D. Salinger's Catcher in the Rye and Sylvia Plath's Bell Jar. Viewed from the vantage of society writ large, 
many analysts discern convergence of previously opposed entities and celebrated acceptance of formerly excluded groups on relatively equal grounds. Princeton economist Richard Lester and the authors of Fortune's USA, The Permanent Revolution, noted that workers were more likely to view themselves as consumers and regard themselves as part of a broad middle class. Likewise, sociologist Will Herberg took note of the decline of ancestral identities and the growing exceptions of acceptance, excuse me, of Catholics and Jews, primarily because the three main faiths had lost their theological precision. Although studies then and since have questioned the degree to which ethnics Americanized, the changes provided stark contrast with the 19th century. Racial exclusion, of course, remained the one glaring exception, but Nathan Glazer and Daniel Patrick Moynihan regarded it as irrational, bound to disappear when people of color adopted mainstream cultural patterns. Hastening the process, Swedish economist Gunnar Myrdal and associates wrote in American Dilemma, would be the recognition that exclusion violated central American values. Excluded, however, well knew inclusion would not happen without struggle. Many of the challenges to exclusion depended on the belief that the excluded differed from those at the center power and privilege in only superficial ways. The famous Brown versus Board of Education argued that the psychological harm that resulted from the separation of the races rather than innate differences accounted for disparities in educational achievements. A similar emphasis appeared in Betty Friedan's Feminine Mystique, which strongly rejected longstanding notions of female biological inferiority and insisted women were entitled to a full human identity did not restrict their goals. For their part, gay Americans could point to the pathbreaking work of Evelyn Hooker that conclusively demonstrated there existed no psychological or mental differences between gay and straight. Although the tendency of the era was to favor integration on the grounds of fundamental similarity, voices ranging from Lorraine Hansberry to feminist Eve Miriam to Donald Webster Corey, author of This Homosexual in America, warned that inclusion ran the risk of erasing differences that served as valuable resources for Blacks, women, and gays, respectively. That position would become much more pronounced in subsequent years. This book uh, belongs to a series founded over 30 years ago by Lewis Perry, distinguished historian of American thought and culture, the author of Radical Abolitionism, Anarchy and the Government of God and Anti-Slavery Thought, that's of 1973, Civil Disobedience, an American Tradition of 2013, and his own synoptic treatment, Intellectual Life in America, a History in 1984. With At the Center, this series of 15 volumes treating successive periods from 16th to early 21st centuries is now complete. And we thereby dedicate this volume to Lou. 
the nature of these volumes require authors to work a kind of trick, devising a theme or argument neither too restrictive as to force a wide range of phenomena into a narrow mold, nor so broad as to be bland, indefinite, uninformative. Insofar as we manage to pull off that trick, we three believe the result stems from a rich collaboration whereby we interactively shape the chapters, their topics, their arrangement, and the guiding purpose throughout. Our discipline's general reliance on periodization is, I suppose, a hallmark of what's called historicism. But I also have sympathy for the anti-historicism of Dipesh Chakrabarti, whose notion of braided histories denies the possibility of a clean cross-section, if you will, of a historical moment. Uh, that is what Daniel Bell in a rather different vein used to cite with mocking scorn as zeitgeist. So our theme disclaims the attempt to fix a single character on this time, but rather identifies a thought style, which we call centering, which itself expressed itself in variegated ways and coexisted with any number of countercurrents. And our period is not the 50s, certainly not as an opposite or prelude to the 60s but rather what we see as a span of time that has a degree of definition, but also fluid boundaries. We end the book focusing on the last years of our span with a discussion of three types of intellectual phenomena, culminations, revivals, and innovations. First, products typically imagine breaks toward 60s dispositions when in fact, they are just as much fulfillments of trends germinating through the mid-century period, such as Jane Jacobs' Death and Life of Great American Cities, Thomas Kuhn's Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. These are culminations. Second, some things present at the inception of our period, which had appeared to lapse for the duration, resurfaced at its end, such as the folk revival, a black left's multiculturalism from Robeson to Belafonte, and even in some respects, more visible gay communities, revivals. Third, we see genuine innovations, such as a new black arts movement, evident already by 1960, such as the jazz secession of Charles Mingus et al from the Newport Festival. Moreover, we rest our definition of the mid-century span less with a definite spirit of the time than on a world historical juncture that is the height of US hegemony amid both Cold War and decolonization and a structure of feeling associated with it that combines somewhat antithetical terms of equipoise and anxiety. The newly achieved overweening power of the United States in the world, without of course any sure centralized control of wide ranging events, called forth a rather new degree of thinking globally in intellectual life. And while a good deal of that trend stemmed from a new regime of Cold War inspired federal funding for scholarship, it also drew in a number of dissenters, overt or discreet, who sympathized with the worldwide decolonizing movements, 
when by the early 1960s, those movements abroad came to appear collectively as a mounting anti-colonial revolution, the veneer of the intellectual academic acceptance of Cold War policy started to crack and bring on in the succeeding decades, a new and different academic scene. Here too, we might see a combination of revival and innovation. As early as 1952, the remarkable anthropologist Robert Redfield, a world federalist, ostensibly devoted to a centering disposition, remarked, quote, is it not true that the individually led creativity in the moral order comes not from people who are in the center of the expanding civilization and who have the power, but from people who feel themselves outside it? He noted, he said, that the East today is in re revolt and, quote, mankind is on the move again, thus prefiguring the claims made by more radical anthropologists, Marshall Solins and Elman Service in 1960, when they welcomed what they called the awakening of once lowly and dominating, dominated peoples as a sign that horizons of historical change had reopened. Redfield's remarks of 1952 had already suggested in ways in ways subtly challenging the mainstream modernization theory of his time that some off-centered off-centered force might play the role of instigating that renewal of change. Paradoxically then, the widening of world affiliation in a universalist and centered mode could subtly give way to a decentering move, or at least a tendency to criticize the weight of US power at the center. Next, we will hear a brief response to At the Center by James T. Kloppenberg, the Charles Warren Professor of American History at Harvard University. Professor Kloppenberg has written about the history of American political thought, as well as contemporary political figures such as President Barack Obama. Professor Kloppenberg asks Professors Blake, Boris, and Brick about the status of centering projects today and the stakes of centering in light of the recent U.S. presidential election. We will then hear the authors in conversation with Professor Kloppenberg about the ways that their book does and does not speak to our contemporary moment. They discuss in particular the work of Daniel Bell, an American intellectual and sociologist whose 1960 book, The End of Ideology, argued that all-encompassing sets of beliefs and programs for the transformation of society had exhausted their role in politics. Thank you all for inviting me and thanks to uh, Casey Howie and Dan for writing such a wonderful book. I think often we in the academy underplay the significance or the difficulty of syntheses of this sort and this is an extremely fine piece of work. I'm not going to go into detail because I've written a review of the book and those of you who want to see it can stand by because it'll appear in the Journal of American History in one of the forthcoming issues. I wish that this book had existed back in the 1970s when Rob Westbrook, Michael Kazin, and I were trying to make sense of American intellectual history. This is exactly the sort of book that will help students do that and that will send scholars scurrying back to the primary sources, which I think is exactly what intellectual historians ought to do. So thank you for producing this book. It will be of great value for decades to come. 
I want to say a little bit about the contemporary issues that the book makes me think of as I reread it in the last few days. Do we have any centering in 2020? If we don't, what are the costs of the absence of any aspiration to centering? A number of people who've written about the polarization in American politics recently have pointed out that the conservative movement from the 60s to the present has become the Republican Party, whereas the Democratic Party remains a coalition of disparate groups that have little in common and can't seem to agree about much of anything. Contrast the moment that uh, is described and examined in At the Center. In 1955, at the Congress for Cultural Freedom, Daniel Bell announced the end of ideology. He thought that the liberal democratic welfare state marked the end of any aspiration toward either Marx or Hayek, let alone Hitler or Stalin. But as at the center points out, that moment didn't endure. Instead, change occurred. But a change occurred in the United States before that liberal democratic welfare state could be fully established as it was fully established in Northern Europe. And I would argue that we've been the poorer for it ever since. Now that we understand, excuse me, now that we understand the underside of pluralism, as it was seen by those who interpreted and celebrated Tocqueville and James Madison, now that we understand the undersides of the pluralism of Robert Dahl and we see the exclusions that were part of at the center, what have we lost? To restate the question I asked at the beginning, do we have any shared ideals that can bring us together or are we fated to endure ever more bitter polarization of the sort that we saw played out in the election and that we seem almost certain to see play out in the next uh, two, perhaps the next four years. So that's the first question. The second question has to do with the point that Casey made to begin with, that this was a period that saw a move away from anti-foundationalism and away from pragmatism and toward a kind of formalism and toward a quest for the universal. And yet, toward the end of the book, um, the last the couple chapters of the book um, deal with the greeting between the meeting of pragmatism and modernism at Black Mountain and elsewhere in the architecture of Louis Kahn, in the happenings of Alan Capro, of the history of science of uh, Thomas Kuhn. So is it possible that even at the height of an aspiration for universalism, we saw the early moments that would lead into the anti-foundationalism of the late 20th century. And if there is a way to move past the fragmentation that we've seen in the last 20 or 30 years in American culture, is pragmatism the vehicle for that aspiration toward another kind of if not synthesis or unity, at least an aspiration to something at the center. You know, I, I don't think historians are very good at being prophets. And so I'm not, I'm not going to uh, suggest how some of the issues that Jim especially raised might be 
resolved. What I will say just in terms of thinking about our project is that we chose to approach this period, I think with a different spirit or a different sensibility than have some recent scholars in the mid century. Sorry to name names, but I think of Mark Greif among others who I think have treated the period with a certain condescension. Um, we wanted to take seriously the universalist and foundationalist aspirations of the period and try to understand historically their situation, their provenance and then their trajectory. Uh, and in fact, part of our purpose was also to suggest that what we call centering uh, does not necessarily have a decided, a definite political bent. Uh, the assumption, especially among, well, with the rise of postmodernism in the 70s and 80s, uh, that the centering of so-called liberal humanism was by nature a conservative impulse. And our argument is uh, thinking of someone like Dwight McDonald, who epitomizes centering when he says the root is man, <laughs> disallows that kind of political uh, reductionism. On the other hand, we didn't seek to avoid uh, or evade politics uh, throughout. As the, on the question of uh, how, uh, what we say about the contemporary moments, it's very difficult. Um, you could read it in two different ways. Obviously, uh, the fragmentation and the fictive realities in which uh, we see uh, various constituencies living uh, was, of course, precisely what Hannah Arendt was rebut was challenging. Uh, the, the whole notion of ideology in her view was precisely the creation of these all enveloping fictive uh, realities. Um, the other side of it, however, and indeed, uh, when we look at the present, uh, you could say that fragmentation uh, is something fearsome. On the other hand, what would one make of MAGA if not a coercive centering impulse uh, of the worst sort. Uh, so, so many of these things can be read variously. Um, I, I actually, if I just might add a bit more in response to the, uh, the question that Jim raised, not in the form of an answer to our current predicament, but just an observation. What's striking to me as I hear the two of you talk is that whatever search for a center people might want to embark on now seems to be a response to a fracturing of the public sphere. Whereas I think that perhaps back in the late 1940s, the search for a center was motivated not so much by a fear of fracturing, but a fear of new forms of domination, of totalitarian control. And so a search for some stable sense of self or stable human essence as a form of resistance. But your, you know, your comments, especially Jim, uh, suggest that if, if people are looking for a center today, it's perhaps for other reasons. Since I raised the question, let me just be a little bit clearer. I think what has happened since the insurgence that you talk about in the book came to uh, a, a kind of um, maturity in the 60s, especially in the late 60s, what we on the left have suffered from is a, a fear of the center, 
and a fear of coalitions because we fear the loss of purity. And there's a new book by Robert Putnam and Shailen Romney Garrett called The Upswing, in which they make the case that what made progressivism and the New Deal and the Great Society possible was the willingness of reformers to form coalitions. And beginning in the late 60s into our own day, we haven't seen as much of that. People have retreated into themselves. And what I think we've lost is a sense of civic engagement. And that was so powerful in the first two thirds of the uh, 20th century. I think it was so powerful in the period that you write about in At the Center. And I do worry really that we on the left have been our own worst enemies because we've been so intent on paying attention to each particular group in the United States that we've lost the awareness that you have to get to 51 to make anything happen in the United States. And that unless you aggregate those groups, you remain a, a collection of powerless minorities. And I worry that we're in the danger of becoming another collection of powerless mi minorities by our unwillingness uh, to sign on to anything that a centrist like Joe Biden might propose. We've had a generation of scholarship that has been devoted to debunking the concerns that emerged quite understandably, as Casey pointed out, uh, in the aftermath of totalitarianism. Uh, and we, we see totalitarians uh, under every rock. And I think as a result of that, we're all too willing to dismiss anything from the center left to the center right as temporizing. Whereas what I found interesting about at the center was the attempt to take seriously, to treat respectfully people who were looking for, as Bell was, a social democratic way forward that would preserve the best of liberal democracy, but would push it into the late 20th century in a way that would bring in those who had been excluded both by race and gender and by poverty. And I think what has happened to us is that we're so concerned um, with each particular group that we've neglected to acknowledge that everyone suffers when we allow those who agree on the right to engage in this fantasy of a laissez-faire of free market capitalism. And we've all been, we as, as privileged academics, but the American people have been paying a tremendous price because of the failure of the left to unite. And I think the time has come for us to stop fragmenting and to do what people like Bell and people whom we've condescended to for over half a century uh, we're trying to do, and that is to make social democracy work in the United States as it's worked very well in Northern Europe up until fairly recently. I would disagree somewhat with Jim's view on this, though uh, I would like it to be clear in my own work that I, I would never condescend to Daniel Bell. <laughs> but. <laughs> Uh, I've uh, learned, uh, learned enormously from him, uh, including my reference to his uh, anti-historicism, which uh, uh, continues to echo in my mind. But two things here. To a certain extent, uh, Bell, Bell's work was so variegated and, and to a certain extent ambiguous uh, that the end of ideology didn't only mean uh, the, the appeal of a new center, but it also meant, as the subtitle of his famous book put it, the exhaustion of political ideas, where 
uh, he was from even that point worried about what you're suggesting, a loss of a center, at least in the, what, what the question he considered uh, enduring. What holds a society together and do, do we have the, the means to understand that? That was an open question for him. But the other side of it is that unfortunately, I think uh, that generation of social democratic liberals also bear some responsibility for uh, our losses since. That is the assumption they bore was that indeed the social democratic welfare state was a fixed feature of modernity. It was an ascendant feature of a modern democracy. It had really set aside prior oppositions. A funny remark that uh, Robert Solo made at a birthday celebration for Bell sometime in the late 90s, I believe, uh, where Solo joked that, well, Bell has, uh, wrote the coming of post-industrial society, which I and others have argued was, in fact, the social democrat liberal vision. And Solo said, we should, we, we really have to recognize the going of post-industrial society as uh, in many respects, a failed assumption of, of a given trajectory. That leads to something I wanted to say in response perhaps to Jim's uh, comments about centering and the contemporary moment. I don't think one wants to identify the centering impulse of the post-war period entirely with the kind of social democratic project that someone like Daniel Bell uh, was involved in. Um, the search for centers of one kind or another occupied conservatives like Leo Strauss and Richard Weaver and Eric Vogelin. Uh, it occupied not only a, a, a radical like Dwight McDonald, but anarcho-pacifists, and, and they are an important presence in our book, um, and the radical humanists with a sort of existentialist tinge who launched Liberation Magazine in the middle years of the decade. So, I mean, what, what strikes me as I think about your comments is that there was a kind of discursive field in the period that we're examining in which the search for centers united people of very different ideological coloration. But then the question is, what does it mean for our own time that people across the ideological spectrum seem entirely to have given up that, that search. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Casey Blake, Daniel H. Boris, and Howard Brick's book, At the Center. We hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Eugenia Lean's book, Vernacular Industrialism in China, Local Innovation and in Translated Technologies in the Making of a Cosmetics Empire. 1900 to 1940. From Columbia University's Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Tim Lundy. And I'm Olivia Branscombe. Our theme music is the song Moonrise by Poddington Bear from soundofpicture.com. <laughs>